Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow, and this week's guest is the Nottingham-born comedian Matt Ford. Matt has been fascinated by politics since he was nine years old. Raised by his mum with little money, he has said that he experienced life at the sharp end of every political decision taken by the government. He studied politics at university, and after working for a few MPs, Matt became a regional organiser for the Labour Party. By 2010, he had moved to London, where he began to pursue a career in stand-up. A job at TalkSport followed, and he also wrote for shows like 8 Out of 10 Cats and The Last Leg. In 2013, Matt launched The Political Party Podcast, which combines topical comedy and a light-hearted interview with a big political name. He also hosts the popular British Scandal podcast with Alice Levine. And in 2020, he revived Spitting Image, which is currently enjoying a run in London's West End. This interview was recorded on Monday the 24th of July, hot on the heels of three by-elections, and just before Matt headed off to Edinburgh with a brand new stand-up show and three political party specials. Matt, you're obsessed with politics, and you've been so since you were a child. At the age of nine, you were desperate for a Labour victory in the 1992 election. But you've said that the Labour Party was such an obvious choice for you. It almost wasn't a choice. Can you explain? Well, the area that I grew up in and the time that I grew up in had been ravaged, really, by not just the Thatcher government, but, but previous administrations. And I was growing up in the inner city of Nottingham. I was born in 1982 to a single mum on benefits in a wonderful but difficult part of the world. And from a very early age, I was just very aware <laughs> that things felt deeply unfair. And I could almost sense, even at a primary school age, that there were limits on me. And I didn't like that feeling. And it felt that a lot of people's lives were going to waste. Talented people, good people that could have made something of themselves. And I, I find that immensely frustrating. I just remember 1992... Obviously, a nine-year-old's perspective on it, you know, it felt like Labour were going to win and then they didn't. And then that incredible period that followed in the run-up to 1997 where things changed very quickly. And just that was a tremendous, exciting time to just be a young person in Britain anyway, I think. But as someone who wanted Labour to win, obviously, it was the ultimate victory. When you were too young to join the Labour Party, you were briefly involved with the Socialist Workers' Party. Can you take me back to this radical teenage phase? What did you get up to and what did you learn about politics and you? Oh, I learned a lot. I mean, the thing that attracted me, the anger was very attractive and the passion, is that I think if you're a young person and you have that sense of injustice and you're finding yourself and there are people in town with a trellis table and they're angry at the state of the world, you think, well, actually, I am. And why aren't more people? So that offers, and they offer obviously very simple answers, and it's the same answer regardless of the time in which they live, but that was very attractive. What I realised very quickly was that these people were just, I mean, some of them were very sweet, but a lot of them were just angry all the time. And 
I just thought that was a bit odd. I mean, there's a time to be angry. You can't be angry at everything because otherwise then perhaps your prescription isn't going to be correct. I remember going to an SWP conference in London and we travelled all the way from Nottingham in a transit van that had no seats. And uh, I kind of thought, I'd seen Labour conferences on telly and thought it was kind of going to be like that, in a way, slightly glamorous, which I realise is sad to even think that about the Labour conference. But I remember getting there and this one would have been 97, maybe 98, and people were getting up saying, Tony Blair's a Nazi and all that. And I just thought, this is mad. Like, this is just absolutely mad. And even then... They're all banging on about the workers and the workers, but I didn't get the sense that many of them did work or actually knew many working people. So a lot of the contradictions and the irony struck me, even if actually I still believe that a lot of them were very well-meaning and were were animated. But I, I also felt that it was the only thing a lot of people had in their lives, and that's true of a lot of members of political parties. But I think you do need a hinterland outside of politics because if it's all about ideology, you do lose the point. Actually, it is about people. And if you're not connected to the world or the country in which you live, then I I don't think you can get the answers right. So it was a very quick dalliance I had with radical politics that I'm glad I went through that and that I experienced it because I think passion is good and I think it's good to figure out where you stand and not just plonk yourself in a position and, and never move. But very quickly I realised I was a, a little too moderate. It was too strong a drug for me. Quite interestingly, before all that, your mum, Josie, who raised you and your sister on her own, was a former nun. Yeah. What values did she instill in you? Well, in a way, I think that's where I got my politics from, was was a sense of community and a sense of helping those in need and things like that and, and being animated about those things. And I think even though now I'm an atheist and I, I think that on some level breaks my mum's heart, going to church as a kid... I mean, she'd been a Catholic nun for 15 years before she had my sister and I. And, uh, you know, that in itself, her stories are remarkable about her time in the convent and just how hard it is. That is incredible. I mean, you say it very casually. Yeah. That's a big thing, you know, <laughs> none to producing you. It is. And I think I'm not the reason she left the convent. You know, that's something that people always suggest. But um, she'd left and then she met my dad. But I think those things of a sense of duty, of service, of there being a bigger point to life and wanting to do something about it and being involved in a local community or sharing values. I think they're all things that you do get out of politics and political parties. So in a way, I think her influence, even though it didn't make me socialist or New Labour or anything like that, I don't think, it certainly kind of nudged me towards that sort of... You know, we went to church every Sunday and I was an altar boy and I think just those things, being part of a community where even if in the end I obviously grew apart from the church, there is something about just spending that time together thinking about how you would improve things or what the point of it is. And I think those those things do have a political impact. In a recent interview, Murray Black, deputy leader of the Scottish National Party, told you that she thought socialist is treated as a dirty word. Did you agree with her at all? And how would you describe your own political ideology? Oh, God, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think it is. I mean, it's definitely used pejoratively. I think part of the problem for me with the word socialist is I think a lot of people who claim to be it don't really appreciate what it means. And I think I was one of those people and for a long time just thought socialism meant fairness. And I think it's pretty clear when you see what some socialist politicians do around the country and, and around the world that it's not, that actually socialism is an economic doctrine that it believes in state control. And, and it's not it's not always a byword. Socialist parties don't always create or generate or deliver progressive outcomes. So I, I totally understand, and I think it's a very British socialist view of socialism, that it's very gentle and that it's, in a sense, kind of liberal. But obviously socialism and liberalism aren't always the same thing, and socialism and fairness aren't the same thing. And I think, I actually think in general, in Britain, we're fairly ignorant of communism and socialism in a good way and a bad way. I think we learn about fascism. We kind of know what conservatism is. You inherently understand capitalism because we live in it. But socialism is kind of misused by both sides. Communism certainly is not appreciated to be the genuine threat that it is because we concentrate on fascism at school. So I think there's a general ignorance of those words. But I think it gets a pretty fair rep. I mean, in the end... If socialist politicians are good and they deliver good things, it has a good reputation, and, and likewise when it's bad. And I think the people in the last few years in this country that have claimed to be socialist and have really stood under that banner have done it a great disservice. So I, I don't think you can really blame people for being slightly cynical about the word. But is that what drew you to Blair? I mean, a comfortable 
socialism, if you like? Well, I think, in a way, I mean, the best phrase I ever heard of it, and I wish I'd have come up with it myself, was market socialism, was that you effectively accept that we live in a market economy, but you try and do things that the state should intervene. I mean, that's the other thing, is that I never saw Blairism or my politics as a compromise. So many people say, oh, yes, you say that because you've got to win. And I think, no, I say that because it's what I actually believe is. I don't want to nationalise everything. I wouldn't want the state to run everything. I think when the market fails, the state should intervene. I think there are things that the state absolutely should provide free at the point of use. But I'm flexible in how that is delivered. And the world changes, and I think you have to change with it. Whereas also the crucial thing, and it, it touches on something I said earlier, was I still feel that Tony Blair understood, perhaps Keir Starmer's the one now, understood working-class people in a way that very few politicians do. And I think really understood the pressures on people of having little money and, and the things that you could do to improve their lives. And when I think about the community I grew up in and the difference that Labour government made, not just in terms of wages, but schools, hospitals, crime, fundamentally transformed... I mean, the, um, the educational maintenance allowance that allowed me to do my A-levels. I mean, these were radical policies delivered by someone who was apparently a sort of centrist compromise. I mean, they were amazing for people on lower incomes. They transformed our outcomes, and I'll be forever grateful to that period. So it, it, I don't think it was that I was looking for a compromised form of socialism. I think socialism itself, or certainly the socialism at the time, that strand of Labourism that, for me, is I think Blair is more of a classic Labour politician than Corbyn is. He's more an heir to Attlee than Corbyn is. And that, for me, was where Labour always was, is, is that sort of thing. Of of course, the health service and schools and public services are, are the things that will always animate Labour people and unfairness and injustice. But also, it is about keeping people safe. It is about generating economic growth and jobs and, and allowing people... It's not even... It, there is a kind of hippie element to Blairism that I think people never got, which is what I really... Identify. And actually, there's a hippie element to the Tories, which is they want you to be able to do, or at least they say... They want you to be able to get on with your life and make something of it. This is intriguing because a lot of Blairites of that time don't really want to face up to it now. <laughs> I think there will always be revisionism in politics and in life, but that government was way more radical than perhaps it or its critics would like to admit. But I think the thing that the Tories really get and that Labour periodically gets is you basically get one go at this life. I would love to think there's something else, and I hope there is, in that time, what are you going to do with it? And you need to give people the ability to be able to get on and do whatever it is they want with it. And if that involves studying something that, that they just want to do for their own personal fulfilment, then let them do it. Or whatever it is, whatever it is gives you joy. I mean, in a way, I think we slightly lose this with politics is politics should be that it's meant to enhance life in every regard. Like this is a way of, we found a way to organize our society and put these people in charge for a brief period of time. This should be about the human experience and, and really augmenting it in every way that you possibly can. And I realise that sounds a bit wishy-washy, but ultimately that is what it's about. And I think I, I would never want to lose that. And I always thought there was a great... There was a sense of the dreamer about the new Labour project that I really liked. People are perhaps re-evaluating that period now themselves, like you. Well, you know what? I, I always thought they would because everything that's followed since has been worse. And inevitably, I think... I think it's natural, and you're seeing it at the moment with Keir Starmer, is it's natural for Labour people to want the very, very best Labour government they could possibly have. The problem is, that is basically impossible. So do you want a Labour government that will do some of what you would like, or do you want a Tory government? And I think that government delivered so many progressive outcomes, changed the... really chimed with the mood of the time. I mean, there's, there was a real emotional connection to that government, and you see that in the election results, and you see that, really, the collapse of Blair's reputation over Iraq. Part of that is because people had such a strong emotional connection with him in the first place, in a way that no Prime Minister since has touched people in that way. But didn't expect him to do that? Maybe not. I mean, I, I think they should have done. I think it's consistent with his worldview. <laughs> I think it's consistent with Kosovo and Sierra Leone. Like, if... I don't think it was out of the context of Blair, but I think part of the reason why it's now being re-evaluated is everything that's happened has been worse and people inevitably in time look back and go, our life was better. I mean, in the end, reality hits you and you can go through a period where at the time you're saying it should be better than this, it should be better than this, but in retrospect, it's really hard not to think that is one of the best governments this country has ever had. And 
It, the last 13 years didn't have to be like this. We could have carried on. That's a brave statement. I can hear old lefties really <laughs> groaning now. <laughs> well, I can hear young lefties groaning as well. But, I mean, you'd say the Attlee government. I mean, for a lot of people, obviously, the Thatcher government, depending on who you were, there were definite winners of that period. But in general, you'd have to say the new Labour government was one of the most radical, redistributive. And in a way, any everyone felt like a winner in that period. Whereas in the Thatcher period, it was pretty zero. Some there were, there were definite winners and there were losers that never recovered. And there are parts of this country that still haven't. But in the Blair era, really, there was a kind of fair element to that. It felt like a general success that the whole country could share in. Do you still have your collection of signed photos of the first term Blair cabinet? Yes, I do. Yeah, I've got tons of them. I've got boxes of signed Nottingham <laughs> Forest memorabilia, signed England shirts, and then lots of political autographs. So I would write to cabinet ministers as a kid and just ask for a signed photo, which means I've got this wonderful collection. I kept all the envelopes and letters, letterheads of government departments that don't exist anymore, like the, what was this Prescott, the D-E-L-T-R, Environment, Local Government, Transport and the Regions. You know, those insane super departments, math that doesn't exist anymore, with signed photos of Prescott, Nick Brown, and many people obviously have now passed, you know, legends that you've you've got these very special mementos of. You studied politics at university. Had you already decided at this point that you wanted to go and work for the Labour Party? Oh, yes. I mean, from the age of 15, the moment I joined the party, I think, I never had a plan. I, I met lots of people in my time in politics, and obviously you'll have met even more thrusting young Turks who have a five-year plan and they want to get selected and they want to be chair of Labour students and they want to go and do this. I was never like that. And I think maybe because of my upbringing, I never actually perceived it was something I would go on and do. You think, well, even in the Labour movement, you think, well, it's, it's not, being an MP is not for someone like me, or I, I could never work in London, or even work at Parliament. You know, you just go, well, that's for people from, I don't know, you don't even think about it as privilege or class. You just think, well, it, it, people like me don't do that. Um, so I just threw myself into There are it. lots of people like you who did do it. They did. And obviously I worked for the party for a bit, but I, I never like asked to work in London. Even when I was working for Labour, I thought, well, they must just be cleverer than me. And obviously in time you realise that's just mad. And that everyone else has their hang-ups, but some people just can advocate for themselves better or they push themselves. So I never had that. And in a way, it's also a reflection of my personality is that I've always just felt like an enthusiast. I get involved in things. If I support a football club, I want to go to every game and I, I want to get my shirt signed and I want to keep my ticket stubs. And I felt like that about politics, that I was in it because for the for the real reasons that I thought the country was unfair and it could be a better place and I thought this was the best way to change it. But also I just thought, I'll just do my little bit and just to be involved in it was a wonderful adventure and it took me to very special places. But I never had that career drive that I think other people in politics But have. what did that job actually involve? So I worked for a number of MPs first, and the best one I worked for was a guy called Paddy Tipping, who is now trying to become the Labour Mayor for the East Midlands, and he just taught me so much about, even just the stuff about political communication. So he'd say, oh, I'm going to write a letter to members and I'd like you to draft it for me. So I'd, I'd write a letter, and it was, he was, um, it was around the time of the Iraq war, and he was against the war. And in the letter, I was like, oh, you know, I know Iraq's not great, but he was like, don't even mention it. He was like, just bash the Tories. That's what Labour members want to hear. It's, you know, give the Tories a good kick. You know, all those things you do talk about and the things you don't talk about and just what a relentless campaigner he was. And then I went on to work for the Labour Party as a regional organiser. So I would get sent around the country working on by-elections and local elections. And it was like being in the army. You know, you would get sent to a day's notice, even less, you get packed up to Warrington or to Blyna Gwent or well, wherever, Scotland, the northeast, the southwest. You get sent all over the country. And that was an amazing experience because when you've campaigned all over Britain, you do realise how hard it is for Labour to win elections and the sorts of things that people will vote Labour for and the sort of things they won't. And, and that, that really calcified for me my politics and just knowing that whenever Labour really deviates from effectively where new Labour is, so do you it ever... doesn't win. Do you ever miss being a Labour activist? Oh, massively. I think the energy with which I woke up in the morning... I mean, I always wake up early anyway, but and I've always had a lot of energy, but the sense of purpose is, is so energising. And I think I, I totally understand what people would get out of joining the clergy or the army or anything like that, where there's a kind of moral purpose to it. That really motivates you through very difficult times. It keeps you going, and I think... It's not like, you know, if you're working for a company and it's going bust, 
that's just hell. If you're working for a political party and it's going through a difficult period, that is very difficult. But you still get the sense that there's a point to the whole thing. You're not just working there to pay the bills. You're working there because you really believe that you're going to change things for the better, even when the government you're working for, you might not agree with everything it's doing or you can sense the public is turning against you or things are going wrong, whatever it is. It was also very stressful, and I stopped doing it in my mid-twenties. You know, it, was, it was so stressful working for Labour at that time. We had no resource, and we barely any staff, and you're just losing everything. And you know what? The thing that actually drove me mad was not fighting the Tories or the Lib Dems or the SNP. It was the, it was the opponents in your own party. It was just. <laughs> but that was the joy of the Labour Party. Uh, maybe, maybe when you're winning, but when you're losing. I mean, I left the day Corbyn became leader. I just thought, I dealt with people like that. I didn't like it. I didn't fall for the act. I've been in too many Labour Party meetings with genteel souls who actually had deeply authoritarian streaks to them, who, in a way, masquerade as a allotment-dwelling moderate and actually have views about Russia and Israel that chill me to my core, that I think are really, really problematic and it comes back to the point we made earlier. Our knowledge of extremism in this country really is limited to fascism because of our education around the Second World War, understandably, because of our involvement in it. But really, our education about communism, unless you do the Russian Revolution at A-level or you choose to study it yourself, we're pretty ignorant about spotting extremism on the left here. And it's up to the public to kind of sniff it out as they did. So that element of it, I just think, I haven't got the stamina. <laughs> Obviously, there should be wings of parties and there should be debate. A policy shouldn't be a fait accompli. And it's always good to think... You know, we could be more left-wing in some areas that are more sort of moderate in others, and I think ideas can evolve, but I just don't have the stamina to sit in rooms with people and argue about <laughs> things that will demonstrably lose you an election. I mean, that's what, apart from anything else, oh, my God, the desire that some Labour people have for Labour to lose, I don't think that will ever go, and I think that will always um, slightly baffle me. Do you agree with Rishi Sunak that the next general election is not a done deal? Oh, absolutely. Totally agree with him. Yeah, it's not a done deal. I think a lot can happen between now and then. But what I do think is, I think the Tories have absolutely shot it. I just think, if you think about how we've got here, one of the things that Keir Sommer says that I really, really think is a phenomenal thing, just in its simplicity, is name one thing now that's better than it was 13 years ago. And I unless you come up with a Joe Cancel like Arsenal, the team he supports, <laughs> you can't think of anything. I mean, in my... Life, I think, this is the worst the country has been. And it is terrible. And the great tragedy of that is it's been twinned at a time of amazing technological advancement. In fact, in, in many ways, the country's never been as good. And you, you look at where we're recording this podcast and we're talking about how it's been regenerated. There's no doubt that you walk down the street and it looks better than it did 13 years ago. That's not just superficial. But in terms of our health service, the way our society is organised, our priorities, economic growth, I mean, it is terrible. The sewage that's being pumped into our rivers and seas, and I think that's one thing that's bad enough, and that's really pinching people. Then there's the moral outrage of the way that Boris Johnson behaved during COVID and the way that his party still seems to completely adore this man who broke the law, and we all know that he did. And then on top of that, Liz Truss, and I think you saw it in a way with the Labour Party that it was... Gordon Brown's unpopularity in the end was completely different to Ed Miliband's unpopularity and completely different to Jeremy Corbyn's. And Liz Truss's, in a way, is the most damaging because every month in this country you have people coming off fixed-rate mortgages and getting clobbered for an extra £6,000 a year, money that they do not have. And that's not just, oh, we've got to find an extra few quid. That is things they, their children can't do. You know, this is the, the depressing tyranny of not having enough, enough money. And I don't think... Sunak gets this at all, that when people are in that situation, they blame themselves. They will blame the government at the ballot box, but you are breaking the hearts of millions of people every year by governing in this way and allowing a zealot like Liz Truss to do what she did with the economy, that insane gamble, and the long-term damage it's done to it. It's not just about the bottom line. It's the damage it's done to our lives, the things we won't be able to do. You know, there'll be people now that might have saved up for the one holiday they'll have and they can't have it. You know, the dreams they've stolen from people. I feel really emotional about what they've done. And I think that has basically broken the relationship with the people. The challenge for Labour is, how do you go from the country, not just not wanting to voting for you, but being repulsed in a way that I've never experienced. And I was repulsed with the Labour Party. I, I was horrified and still am at the instincts that exist within it. Those dark undercurrents, and they are dark. 
and I really worry about it, that that kind of genie could be summoned again at any point in the future, which is why Starmer being absolutely ruthless has been so refreshing, is that he has been prepared to do the difficult things with his party that even Blair wasn't prepared to do, and that Cernak certainly isn't prepared to do with his party. So I just think all those things together, I think Keir Starmer actually chimes with the British public more than people realise, and Labour still needs to show that it's fully changed, but of all the by-election results the other week, the Selby one is the one. That is astounding. That is off the scale. I mean, I'm not even sure Blair would have got a result like that. That absolutely shows you that Keir Starmer is appealing to not just Labour Tory switchers, but people who've never voted Labour before in their life. Classic Tories are livid with their own party and they see Keir Starmer as a moderate alternative who would be a better Prime Minister. And I think the deal is not done, but I think of the two men... Starmer is closer to doing the deal with the British public than, than Sunak is. When it was announced that Labour had been taken out of special measures by the Equalities watchdog, Keir Starmer said that the Labour Party had changed, that it was unrecognisable from 2019. Has he done enough? I mean, I think he's done more than any of us would have ever hoped and dreamed. He's been far more ruthless. I mean, I, I'm not involved in the Labour Party anymore, so... In a way, I don't know. I don't know what it's still like. At... Not involved in the Labour Party? <laughs> well, well I'm, not, I'm not a member and I'm not sure I'd ever rejoin, so I don't go to meetings and I don't know about the grassroots level and, and whether that's changed. I think certainly if you look at the leadership and the front bench, I mean, apart from anything else, the talent that Labour has now, and I think in a way you have to respect talent in any political party and you look at, I mean, I've always... Whatever our politics, I always thought Cameron was talented. I always thought that Jeremy Hunt was talented. Michael Gove is clearly a very bright person. There are people that it's okay to look across the divide at and accept their ability. And I think you look at Labour's front bench and they're the sorts of people that gather respect. Keir Starmer is talented. Rachel Reeves, Wes Streeting, Peter Carl, Pat McFadden, Alison McGovern. There are so many people now, Yvette Cooper, that are national level talents. And I think for a long time... Labour didn't have that. As well as getting the politics wrong, there wasn't talent there. And I think that change... I mean, West Streeting is a mega talent. I mean, that is a guy that... In a way, I'll always be a football fan. You look at young players coming through and you're like, this is like when Michael Owen scored against Argentina or like when Rooney was first on the scene. I think Starmer feels like a sort of Harry Kane level. You know, he's a captain and he's a leader and he's got this amazing team around him. And I think those things... Having talented people in politics is also important. But what about broader criticisms of Starmer himself, for example? Many spoke out against his commitment to the two-child benefit limit and think that he's not progressive enough in his desire to be seen as fiscally responsible. Well, I think Labour has to win is the crucial thing. And dragging Labour into more commitments this far out from an election is really aiding and abetting its defeat. Labour can't do everything. And the Blair government cut benefits for single mothers, for single parents. Um, and that affected my household. But overall, we were better off because of all the other changes that they made. And I think what you will see with Keir Starmer is... I mean, I don't think anyone doubts he wants to get rid of it. But you, ha you cannot go into an election promising everything. And the moment you are drawn on that commitment, then you're drawn on others and others and others. And it is an open goal for the Tories to attack you. And the reality is, as he keeps saying correctly, is... The next Labour government isn't operating in the same landscape as the last Labour government did. We're not living in a period of economic growth. You can't do everything. And for every penny that is spent on the NHS, that means you can't spend money elsewhere. And he's got his five missions, he's got his five priorities, he has to stick to those. And whenever there are discussions about specific... You know, these are deeply unfair policies that exist. He's not going to be able to get rid of them all. No government is. So you have to just stick to the things that you are going to do. Because the other side of that conversation is, is that some people will hear that and say, thank God Labour does just get dragged in. Because also people just don't believe it. There is a credibility problem. He could say, yes, I'll get rid of it. Most people won't believe him. So then what's the point? <laughs> You're like, well, if he's already said he's not going to do it, then he's better sticking to his guns and, and keeping the credibility that reassures people and that gets you a Labour government to change the country for the better than just to kind of make the pain go away. And that's another thing. So many politicians, and that was something that drove me mad when I worked in it, just want the pain to end. They can't handle the pressure. And I totally understand that. It's not nice being criticised. It's not be nice being told that you're wrong or immoral. He's got the guts to stick up to it and say, I'm, I'm sticking to this. And I think there's a wider benefit to that, that the, the rest of the country says, that's a guy who's actually robust. 
You've said that charisma is essential in a party leader. What do you think of Keir Starmer, both as the face of Labour and his performance at Prime Minister's Question Time? I think he's been really good at Prime Minister's Questions, and I think he's... Obviously, he's got that legal... But I mean, the the main thing I would say about him is, even since he became leader, is he's vastly improved at, on the presentational side. I mean, the main thing is that he's a credible Prime Minister. Is this someone who would do a better job running the country than the guy currently doing it? I think most people would say yes, and the polling kind of bears that out. And he is charismatic, but I think he's had Isn't to... it a question of the sort of businessman versus the holier-than-thou? I mean, I'm not sure I accept... I mean, which one's which? <laughs> I, think, I think Sunak is a bit of a drip. And I think we can focus on Starmer a bit. And obviously, that's in a way, that's the more interesting because there's the chance for the first time in a long time for Labour to win from opposition for the first time since 1997. But he is charismatic. And when I've had him on my podcast and he's more relaxed, he's, he's very charismatic. And he's funny and he's relaxed. And obviously, he's on top of the detail. And... I think, in a way, he's been so focused on making the Labour Party professional and acceptable and um, sensible. That's where his energy has gone. And then, in a way, he is slowly revealing his character and his personality. You know, he's had a lot of work to do in policy terms and on the managerial side. And I think he's realising now that three or four years into his leadership, he needs to start showing who he is and that he's comfortable. You look at the way he handled those protesters the other day, where they're right in his face... I mean, you never know where these protesters are from or what they might have, and he's just totally composed. And I think there's a real reassuring element to him. And I think he is more charismatic than perhaps he's been given credit for. The thing I keep thinking, more than anything, is in that election campaign, when it's Rishi Sunak against Keir Starmer, in whatever format those TV debates have, whenever they're put in front of the public, I think Starmer will massively outshine him. And I think for a number of reasons, but mainly... I don't actually think Rishi Sunak knows how to connect with people at all. And I think Starmer really, in a way, has kind of channeled the mood of the time. There is a dismay that the country has ended up like this. And I think, in a way, even his vocal start, you know, he sounds dismayed. You know, the, let the country down, John. You know, even his voice sounds. <laughs> he channels the mood of the time in a way, and I think... Occasionally, you can see when a politician is going to strike the mood of the nation. Obviously, Blair did it in 1997. I remember Boris Johnson doing it at the 2012 Olympic, and obviously that was easier because that was a celebration, but he kind of caught something, and his personality suited that. I think Starmer really chimes with a sense of just a broad dismay that the country's in a real state, and I think that is what is really going to connect with people. And I think when they're in a room with him, when they see him on TV, when he's fired up and he's going for it, I think people will realise that he is very charismatic. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's move on to your post-party career. What inspired you to start doing stand-up when you moved to London? I'd always done it as a hobby when I was in Nottingham. I did my first gig around the same time that I joined the Labour Party. I was about 16 and would do uh, stuff on stage in in comedy clubs around town. But again, I'd never thought that I'd end up doing it as a living. It was just, I fancied doing it, so I did it. And then when I moved down here, there were just more opportunities to do it. And then I was very lucky that... I got a job on Talk Sport doing the overnight slot at weekends. And that allowed me to jack in the day job. 
And then I had three or four nights a week that were spare, so I could just gig more. And then the more I did it... That was it, your sort of training. <laughs> it was, yeah. And it was, I was doing like midnight till six <laughs> in the morning through the night. And this was pre-Twitter. This was when overnight radio really was the outlet for the weird and the wonderful and the macabre and the, mm-hmm. you know, the bonkers, the eccentricity of, of the country was laid bare in a way that you see in the daylight hours on social media now. Um, so that, just that freedom... Was it also useful to hear the other side of the story? I mean, you had people making most extraordinary claims on your programme, didn't you? You did, and, and you had, you know, conspiracy theorists and mm. flat earthers, and they were genuine, you know, they were earnest people. And it, it, these people weren't making it up. They truly believed this stuff, and that was a real insight into how many people thought this stuff. And it, it was almost like um, uncovering a whole section of society, a kind of secret element, really, that in effect, the mainstream media wasn't showcasing anywhere other than there and in a way would only be showcased by social media and distorted by social media. But uh, that was a real education in that I already knew that people had different political opinions to me and that the country was broadly around the centre ground and that there were lots of very conservative people in the country and things like that. Um, And I understood where they were coming from. But that was the first time I really realised how widespread a kind of of bonkers element to... It sort of educated you. Oh, massively. And also, it educated me in the sense that just mocking those people, you know, there was an element of sport about it that that you're both engaged in. It's funny to have a row on the radio and the presenter and caller know what they're entering into when, when they're um, lambasting each other. But equally, you're like, well, this isn't a way to change their mind. Just kind of two sides laughing at each other. You know, it's good entertainment, it's funny. But equally, I never really felt like I was getting anywhere. You started your political party podcast in 2013. What was your vision for this when you started out? Well, firstly, I remember seeing politicians behind the scenes and them being very different to how they were in public and being frustrated that effectively there was no arena for that, just in general. I I never thought I would do anything about it. And then I remember going to, I think it was the launch of Andrew Rawnsley's second book, The End of the Party, did a QA and a and it was packed. I was like, this is great, seeing this amazing author, and I loved his books. And I was like... Well, this stuff must exist all the time in London. I came down and it didn't. I was like, I can't believe there isn't a kind of political interview night where authors, politicians, journalists, activists aren't put in front of an audience. So in the end, out of frustration, I basically created it. They'd run away from an audience. Some of them do, yeah, not everyone's been on. And also, it was a good discipline for me. It was a regular night where I could write regular topical material about stand-up and perform that in the first half, and then in the second half, interview a politician in an informal, slightly teasing way, in a way that... It's really important in our democracy to have politicians visibly held to account by credible news organisations in the way that you've done throughout your remarkable career and in the way that the Today programme does and things like that. But I think you also need, almost for peace of mind and just for context, a different place where you get a bit longer with them and you still ask them about difficult things, you don't shy away from that, but that it is done more in a way that's a bit more informal less of me trying to hold them to account and more just, okay, you know, answers are allowed to hang in the air a bit. I do move on. I'm not trying to pin them down the whole time. I'll pick them up if they've said something that's obviously ludicrous or hypocritical or whatever, and we'll laugh about it. But I just thought, just to place them to be human beings, because in general, I am on the side of politicians. But my instinct is to be on the side of people who have the guts to put themselves forward for election. I think it is difficult. I don't think there are easy decisions, even for parties I would never vote for. I think leadership is so hard, and I really admire people who go for it, and I think you have to respect anyone who has a mandate from the public. So name me a politician who has surprised you after sitting down and talking to them for an hour. I mean, so many of them surprised me in different ways. The one that surprised me the most was Tessa Jowell. Really? I had never met anyone like that, and I still haven't to this day. And I was so emotionally moved by her that I I think about her so often. I think she really had a an effect. So I used to record it at a place called the St. James Theatre in a cabaret bar that we had there. And before any interview, and I'm not sure if it's the same for you, but you kind of, certainly if it's someone you're aware of, you think, well, the interview will probably be like this. You know, when you're interviewing William Hague, you think it'll be really funny, he'll give us some good behind-the-scenes stuff, and he'll have really interesting stuff to say about the Tory party in the country, and he'll be pretty fair. Or, you know, with Blair or Brown or whatever, or Alistair Campbell, you kind of know what you get. With Tessa Jowell, I thought, you have a really talented politician, it be really interesting. I wasn't prepared at all for how emotional the experience was and how magical she was. And, and 
I mean, it <laughs> returns to the questions of faith, I guess. And I don't believe in any of that. But if, when I die, I arrive at the pearly gates or whatever there is, and God says, apart from your wife and, you know, your loved ones, you met one saint or an angel in your life, who was it? I would say Tessa Jowell without any hesitation. Where can we hear this? Look for the political party, Tessa Jowell. It's out there. Wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify, on, on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else. I, honestly, I don't believe in auras or any of that. But if I had to say one person who had it, I'd say Tessa Jowell. And, and everyone who was there that night, there were hundred of us in that room. And there are people that still come up to me, still email and say, I was there that night. It was what elected office meant to her. It was such a profound thing for her to be elected by people and to represent them. And it wasn't a weight in the sense that it was a burden. It was a privilege to her. And it, it there was something really deep and meaningful. And she expressed it in such an elegant and gentle way. that I just remember almost like the sound in the room was different. It was like the lighting changed. Now, I've never had an experience like that in my life. She had something else. And um, I don't know what it was. But boy, everyone there that night felt it. Well, I shall set out and listen to it. Um, has any politician frustrated you in your attempts to get them to open up by sticking too hard to the party line or answering the question they want to answer rather than the one you ask? In a way, it, the happy accident of the format is that it's in front of an audience. Mm. And having an audience there... You get a quick groan. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Is that it's a pressure and a politician likes to impress an audience. So... I think it depends... Firstly, I think it depends on what stage of the career. There is a definite correlation between people at the end of their careers are far more indiscreet. They basically tell you everything. When people think that they might still get a cabinet role or a shadow cabinet role, that they're less vocal. But having an audience there, it works in so many ways. It's not just that they want to please them by giving a good answer. The first time they get a laugh, you can see them think, well, I like that feeling. I'm funny. You know, who doesn't want to feel funny? And for a politician, often they don't feel funny. So when they first get that laugh, I think they go, okay. And, and then they give more and more and they open up a bit a, a bit more. And I think a lot of people thought having an audience there would make it harder. Actually, it's made it far easier because it gives them a crowd to play to. You're speaking to two Scottish National Party MPs during the Edinburgh Festival. You are pro-union, but do you think it's still looking weaker than it was coming out of 2014, that referendum. What will Keir Starmer need to do, well, to win back Scottish voters? Well, uh, I think with anything, it's about who your opponent is and the opponent is collapsing. I mean, my view of the whole thing of Scottish independence, mm. of Brexit, the, the real context to all of that is the collapse of the Labour Party in Scotland and in England is if Labour had taken different decisions, elected different leaders, these these debates would not have developed in the way in which they did. And again, it's about who the, the candidates make such a difference. And you can't blame people for thinking Nicola Sturgeon would be a more formidable uh, First Minister than Richard Leonard. You can't blame people for thinking that David Cameron would be a more formidable Prime Minister than Ed Miliband or even Boris Johnson than Jeremy Corbyn, given the things that Corbyn represented. So... Now that Labour is more sensible, more professional, more formidable, people are looking at Keir Starmer as a prime minister at a time when the SNP isn't just collapsing under the weight of its record, but under, of course, a, a prolonged police investigation that is effectively scandalising the, the entire brand of the party. But what Labour needs to do to win in Scotland is exactly the same as what Labour needs to do in, in England and in Wales and everywhere else is be a party that resonates with the public, show people that you can get things done for them. The, the, the basics of politics will never change. Is Are you someone that I think is bright enough, you know, intelligence matters, are you a bright, charismatic person that I think will change the country for the better and lead us in a responsible way? And also I think Labour doing well in England helps Labour in Scotland because if people in Scotland, you know, a lot of the independent stuff is about just not wanting the Tories. Mm. I, I totally understand that. And for a time when you had Corbyn and Leonard, well, then, of course, you're going to vote SNP. If that's your driving thing is, I don't want the Tories to run Scotland, then, of course, you're going to vote for the SNP. But now, at the next election, for the first time, really, since 2014, Labour can say, if you really want to get rid of the Tories, there is a way to do it, to actually remove them from office altogether. And, of course, the polling shows people in Scotland are, are realising that in the same way that people in England are. And it's exactly the same as... People in Scotland and England have absolutely the same desire which is they need a credible prime minister. They need someone that they trust 
to look after their money, to, to run their schools and hospitals properly. And I think that's true north and south of the border. But I was never pro-union in, in terms of like the Union Jack. I'm a patriot, but I'm not like queen and country type thing. I believe that even with the Tories, it is a fundamentally progressive arrangement, that it's redistributive, that just in general, my worldview is I want less barriers, not more. I was pro-EU. I'm pro-UK. I don't think you get anywhere. I totally understand the frustrations. And if I was living in Scotland through this period, of course I'll get... I've been living in England and I'm frustrated with it. But the answer isn't to make things harder. The answer isn't to erect borders. The answer is to find a way to work with the people next door, the people you have most in common with. And I just always prefer politicians who offer unity over division, just as a, a default setting. Now, you're also taking a nightly stand-up show to Edinburgh. You're performing Inside Number 10 at the Pleasant. What can people expect from the show? People can expect... The worst. Some people might... Well, if they expect the worst, then they'll be pleasantly surprised, hopefully. But it's what all my shows deliver, which is I mock all sides, um, obviously in different That's ways. That's what I meant. <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. I, I give them all a good walloping in very different ways, and uh, it is a riot of an hour. If you're interested in politics, and even if you're not, I make it pretty accessible, and uh, everyone gets a good going over. Can people expect um, the odd impression, and which is your favourite right now? Right now, I do like doing Keir Starmer, because mm. I think, firstly, no one else is doing him, so there's a novelty to that. I think well, I'm, it's clever to do it, because you've got to define what it is you're doing. Yes, and he's got that slight clenched teeth delivery. The five missions, John, should change. And it, it's the way he sort of moves. Even <laughs> his body is sort of upright and uptight. His hands are often at kind of chest height in a way I've never seen a politician do before. And the, there's a way, he almost has a rhythmic. There are two phrases he says that I think really capture how his voice moves. And one is, the Metropolitan Police. And you get the kind of block nose and staccato thing. But he said something the other week. Sometimes there's almost a musical rhythm to how he speaks. The fundamentals of global economic competition. And I thought this, they sound really good. You know, he's got a really quite comical delivery sometimes. And he, he has this way of drawing words out. You know, they're letting the country down. There's almost like an Ed Miliband draw to, to some of the words. So he's really fun to do. Um, Rishi Sunak is more um, managerial, right? And it's that sort of bobbing head and constant, you know, almost positive to the point that he's ignorant about what's happening, John, right? And so that's kind of funny. They're, he's almost like bobs around a bit like Kermit. They've got very different energies. And I think a lot of it is it's the voice, but it's also the physical element is with Boris Johnson, it's that, you know, the narrowing of the eyes, John, you know, and the, and the slowing down. And there's you know, sort of constant mystified way of I can't you know, Channel Four News, I you know, sort of lefty pop Johnson and all these uh, you know, pinko pals in Primrose Hill popularity. You know the sort of desire to constantly find some sort of alliterative rhythm to something. They're so different that in a way it's like having a a load of little puppets in a box that you can muck about with. Would you ever consider returning to party politics? Or are you? Too happy with the niche that you've carved out for yourself. <laughs> Way too happy. It's more fun and it's more... I, I think once you've done a job like this, you're basically unemployable. I've been my own boss for the best part of 15 years now. The thought of having to... I mean, I'm very motivated. I get up early and I'm very productive. But the thought of having to have a line manager... And also, politics is really difficult. And I think not enough people in politics recognise their limitations. And I think there's something good about realising... I'm not good enough. I just, I, I know I'm not. I know I don't have that extra bit that you need to really be able to serve the country or whatever party it is you are. I just know that I'm not as good. I worked with some truly brilliant people who, are, who just were phenomenal. And I just think they're so talented at politics in a really good way, in a, in a way that improves people's lives that I know I don't have that. I'm an enthusiast. I love it. But I'm I'm a fan rather than a than a... Can you permanently eschew the idea of becoming a politician yourself? Oh, 100%. I mean, the thought of it. I mean, you must have seen it. I, I think it it looks like hell. I mean, it is. Even just working for that first MP, working for Paddy, I was just at the hours. Even being a backbench MP is beyond a full-time job. And it is if you do it properly, you are never off. And it takes a toll on you and your family. Some people have the energy and the stamina for that. I don't. And I like being able to go to football matches and gigs and festivals without someone going, oh, shouldn't you be in Parliament or whatever? It's like, oh, man. And on top of that, just all the other stuff. For all of it, it is so intensely rewarding. I don't have the tolerance for the other stuff. 
I do recognise my limitations. I wouldn't be a good politician. I don't find it an attractive thing, sadly. As someone who loves it, uh, having seen it, I just think it destroys people and it shouldn't. But also it reveals character. And I think the people that can really handle it are very, very special people. And and I, that is a non-ideological point. I think I have a lot of admiration for Theresa May. I think to put yourself forward at that point to steady the country, you can argue about whether she succeeded or not. That was a thankless task at that point. What an amazing commitment to public service to throw yourself into that at huge personal cost. And then to stay in Parliament afterwards in a way that so few modern prime ministers have. You know, most of us would perceive that loss of status to be just too embarrassing to handle. That was a great lesson in what pride should be about and and swallowing that. And she's a fascinating character study, Theresa May. But anyway, I, I would never do it. Matt Ford, it's been a joy talking with you. John, this has been a privilege. I've obviously been a, a huge fan of yours for, for decades now. No, no, no. This has been a treat. That was the satirist Matt Ford. His new stand-up show is titled Inside Number 10, and you can find links to that and his Edinburgh Fringe political party specials in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.